to another Crowdlinker Fireside Chat. I'm Aram Mukumuk, the host. Thanks for tuning in. On the show, I'm interviewing innovation leaders who are working on big industry disruptive problems from within large enterprises. Uh, my guests have been in the trenches and have lots of practical advice to share about building quality uh, digital products, staying agile, and most importantly, fostering an innovation mindset and culture within an enterprise. This is episode number 11, and I'm joined here today with Ravi Amekha to talk about adopting an innovation DNA. Uh, quick bio on Ravi, he's a consumer technology and product leader who has scaled products that have impacted millions of people and scaled teams to meet the challenge. He is currently the executive in residence at Reforge and previously he was the chief product officer at Tinder and previously before that product director at Facebook and before that the VP of consumer product at TripAdvisor. So amazing to have you on our show, Ravi. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about the conversation. Cool, cool. Yeah, likewise. Um, first question I have is uh, I want to learn a bit more about what you're doing about in your current role at, at Reforge. Uh, what does your roles and responsibilities look like there? Yeah, it's a really interesting role. So I've known um, Brian Balfour, the CEO of Reforge for a number of years. I actually um, was with Brian at his first company, Vixmo. I was the head of product there uh, and worked with Brian for, for many years. Um, and uh, I, I'll give a little bit of background on, on Reforge. Um, Reforge is a company that's providing career accelerators for people that want to accelerate their career in growth and product. Um, it's really become a knowledge center for some of the best practices around um, growth and, and product thinking and product strategy. Uh, and one of the things that makes it really unique is the content is created uh, not by academics, but by practitioners, um, operators who have gotten insights as part of um, the work that they've been doing and Reforge helps them turn those earned insights into insights that they can share um, with a broader community. And so one of the things that's been really important for the company is being able to build content based on operator insights and then also have operators be able to present the content in live sessions and walk through cases that are that are relevant. Uh, and so Brian, about I think a year and a half or two years ago, created this executive in residence program, um, which solves for a number of different things. One, um, it solves for operators and executives who are looking to um, go into their next role, but need some time and space to think about it. Um, they can come and, and work with Reforge for um, a period of time, six to six to 12 months. Um, and during that time, they help um, contribute to the content development. They help teach uh, the, the programs um, in the live session. And so it uh, really solves two things for the participants in Reforge's programs. It gives them exposure to um, executives and operators who are not just thinking about these these things, but really doing them day to day. Um, and for the uh, executives and residents, it gives them the opportunity to contribute what they've learned uh, to a broader audience, and then um, uh, gives them the time and space to really think about what they want to do next. So so far, it's been a great uh, role for me. I started in August. I jumped right in. I started leading the uh, product strategy. Uh, program that was six really intensive weeks. And then since then, um, I've been working on some other things with with Reforge as well as exploring um, some ideas for what I want to do next. Nice, nice. Well, I mean, with your background, Ravi, I think uh, you could really go anywhere. So that's great that I, I love what you're doing with um, Reforge. It's, uh, it's a great initiative. And I think passing that knowledge that you've built over the years to others, I think is like, you know, priceless in many ways. So Hope everybody's learning from you. 
Absolutely. I think that's um, one of the best parts of the tech industry is the willingness to share ideas and, share. and help make everyone better. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, that's kind of why, why we're doing the show as well. So yeah, absolutely. Pass on that, that knowledge. Um, cool. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question. We had the chance to, you know, discuss this earlier, um, in our pre-planning call. And, um, one thing that you mentioned was um, what it takes to adopt an innovation DNA. Um, I want to, you know, talk a bit more about what does that mean to you and why is it important? I think it's really important because of this fundamental idea of disruption. Um, so Clayton Christensen, famous professor from uh, HBS, um, really brought this idea of disruption to the forefront um, with the work that he's done. Um, and the fundamental idea is that large companies um, tend to solve for internal measures of success once they get to a certain size. So that might be solving for um, EBITDA or particular metrics on your PL or other metrics that Wall Street is looking, looking for. Um, and when companies start to take their eyes off of the customer and really focus on growing the businesses that they have today, rather than thinking about the businesses that they want to have um, tomorrow, it creates white space for fast moving um, startups to come in and better solve for the needs of customers and do the things that um, are, uh, you know, difficult for a large company to do because they're so committed to the current path um, that they're on. And so big companies as part of their success, open themselves up to, um, to disruption. Um, and it's particularly true because big companies have shown that there's really interesting markets um, to, to be had. Um, Jeff Bezos is famous for saying, you know, your margin is my opportunity. Um, and so, you know, companies know, startups know that there's fertile ground um, by looking at the markets that big companies are um, playing in and um, thinking about those markets in a different way. So I think an innovation mindset is particularly important um, for established uh, companies that are looking to continue to grow the businesses that have made them successful, but also think um, in an unfettered way about what the opportunities look like in the future. And you kind of touched about some of the things that companies, large enterprises typically have to focus on like, you know, pleasing shareholders and, you know, EBITDA targets and all that. Um, what, what else? Like, why do you think large organizations fall into the trap of optimizing more for themselves versus optimizing for the customer, like the end user, the, the buyer? I think it turns into a very human thing on the ground. Very few companies, if you talk to the people at the time that they're being disrupted, don't understand that they're being disrupted, especially the people that are that are in um, in the ranks and and trying to compete day to day. Um, so you know, there's very few people at BlackBerry that would have said, "No, we're not getting disrupted by the iPhone." They knew that it was happening um, at the time that it was was happening, um, but humans are um, you know kind of programmed to align their work with the incentives and big companies have incentive models that incentivize people to um, think short term and to generate results in terms of objective metrics um, and so the easiest thing to do for a big company is to um, you know look at a particular metric that has driven success at the past um, and commit to moving that metric and achieving their quarterly results as a result of moving moving that metric and you rinse and repeat, do that over and over again. Um, and the people who are really good at doing that are the ones that rise uh, within a lot, lot of larger companies. Um, but that uh, really focuses people on the short-term 
uh, metrics optimization rather than long-term innovation thinking. It takes a lot of foresightedness. It takes a lot of risk tolerance um, to step away from a business that is doing well, or even a business that's not doing well, but is large um, and say, look, we're not going to focus on that anymore. We're going mm -hmm. to focus um, on something else. I think a great example is Netflix. Um, it, you know, it seems obvious now, but Netflix had their uh, DVD rental business and made a very difficult decision at the time to step away from um, a business that was generating a lot of cash um, and commit to streaming. Everyone knew at the time that streaming was going to be the future. Uh, few companies knew along what timeline and very few companies were willing to say we're completely stepping away from um, our uh, you know, other modes of distribution and going to commit uh, commit to streaming. Disney's a great example. They're doing great now, but um, they were late to the streaming game. Other companies who are not doing as well were also late to, to the streaming game. So um, it took a lot of intestinal fortitude for Netflix to say, we're going to turn away from a business that's doing well, um, but really optimize for the future and know that we're going to go through a couple of years um, of headwinds before we get to a point where um, this is start, starting to generate returns. Um, and at the moment you're doing that, you don't know exactly what the future is going to look like. Uh, so you have to have a significant amount of fortitude and a significant amount of conviction. And you, you mentioned that companies need to have that foresight ability to see like potential changes and uh, uh, adjustments they need to make in their business. Is there like, what would you say to like a corporate innovation leader who's at the precipice or at the cusp of that moment? And like, how can they detect this early on or what can they do to kind of like uh, prevent from failing in terms of uh, this type of shift? I think the most important thing, and it sounds very simple, but it really is the, the key is to talk to customers um, and have really rich, rich customer, uh, customer conversations. Um, and to talk with the customer, to segment the customers and start to talk to the customers that are the most forward thinking are the early adopters. Um, one thing I've seen over and over again, um, you know, as companies get bigger, it gets harder and harder to talk to customers. User research turns into, um, you know, at a startup, it's just a matter of sending an email to a customer that's emailed in or picking up the phone and talking to someone at a big company. They tend to think about user research on a quarterly time scale with budgets in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And from the time you have a question that you want to ask a customer to the time you get an answer, um, you know, two quarters have gone, gone by and a hundred thousand dollars has been, been burnt. Um, and it's just not a way to, you know, actually understand what customers want. Um, and there's no reason that the people at the larger companies can't just pick up the phone um, and talk to customers and understand um, what's going through their minds and how they're thinking about um, the business. And so the thing that I really recommend for, um, internal innovation leaders is to not just talk to your average customer, but find the customers that are um, the outliers, um, that are the outliers in some way. So they might be outliers in terms of um, the level of spend that they have with your company. They might be outliers in terms of the size of the organization. It doesn't need to be that, you know, the size of their organization is um, large. It could be that, you know, your very small company customers are the ones that have their ear to the ground um, and understand um, what's what's ha happening. It could be customers that are using the product in a way that feels non-obvious. Um, you know, it's not a way that you designed the product for, but they're using it um, to solve a different problem. Um, and through those customer conversations, you can get to an understanding of where things are going. Um, a good example of this is, um, you know, in the last few years, I've spent a lot of time with um, people in the Gen Z age demo. So anywhere from 13 to, to 22 um, at Facebook, I was on a team focused on, on Gen Z and understanding changing social media habits for younger users. Um, at Tinder, I spent a lot of time talking to younger people about how they meet 
um, each other. And through those conversations, you can not only see what's, um, you know, what problems they have, but what problems other demographics are likely to have because they're often at the forefront. Um, one example of this is uh, in uh, 2017, I was having a lot of conversations with, with people in the Gen Z uh, market um, and we got some early signal around, you know, there's a rise in the need for short form video. And a lot of people are talking about Vine and Musical.ly. Um, and then people started to talk about TikTok. And so um, very early on, we were able to see that there was an interesting trend here before TikTok uh, was a household name. And that came um, from talking to users that were uh, really on the forefront, both because they were younger and because they were the trendsetters within um, their, their communities or their social circles. Can I ask, I mean, in those situations and like at Facebook and uh, at Tinder, it must have been like massive scale of users that you could have spoken to. How did you efficiently go about like, as you said, not spending quarters doing that type of intelligence, but spending, you know, weeks or, you know, two week sprints to get that, you know, intel to make some decisions forward? like what, what tools, what process did you use to make that um, efficient? One of the interesting things to me about Facebook is most of the companies that I'd been at at the past in the past had user research departments, um, but the the number of user researchers to PMs that ratio was very low. Um, so TripAdvisor was very committed to user research. We had user research labs on site, which was unique for a company of TripAdvisor size. Um, but there were only a couple of people within the organization that were providing all of the user research capability for. 100 plus um, PMs. Whereas at Facebook, they have user researchers, um, probably one for every two PMs or sometimes one for every one PM. So there's wow. a massive amount of people there. Um, they're also exceptional people that come from, you know, really deep backgrounds in user psychology and user, user behavior and really understand how to structure a conversation with um, customers in a way that uh, gets at the heart of what they need. Um, so a lot of it had to do with just making the investment. The other thing that really helped was that there was user research ha sessions happening every week. Um, and in the past, my experience had been, you know, if a user research session was happening, um, you would lock the interview guide maybe a, a week or a couple of weeks ahead of time. Then you would go in and have a very structured conversation and then come out with a report and it would take, you know, on the time scale of weeks or months. Whereas with the Facebook sessions, um, every week there was open time so that, you know, if there's questions that you had the prior day, um, there was room within the interview uh, session to actually ask those, those questions. So the latency between having a question for customers and actually getting an answer from customers was on the order of days or maybe, maybe weeks. Um, and so I think that's a really important thing for larger companies to solve for. Um, companies often think about, you know, the fact that we need to move faster, we need to move faster, like startups move because they're so agile. Um, and startups are not agile because they have a high velocity. Start startups are agile because they have a low latency. In fact, startups can't do as much as big companies just by circumstance, just by physics. They don't have as many people. They don't have as much capital. But the thing that they do have is they don't have the bureaucracy that um, inhibits their ability to ask a question and then get an answer in a short amount of time. And when you can have low latency thinking, um, you can have a hypothesis, you can get an answer to it. It really changes your relationship with customers. It changes your relationship with problems. Um, and it turns that relationships more into a conversation than um, something where, you know, you, you sort of go on a track for a long period of time, figure out you're, you're on the wrong path and then make a, a pretty dramatic switch and do that over and over again. Um, so it makes the whole problem solving process a lot more high resolution. Interesting. Yeah, I think with everything that you're saying, it really becomes really apparent that the only way to kind of avoid this type of trap 
is for enterprises to really be more customer focused, customer obsessive. Um, are there, is there any other advice that you would give to innovation leaders who are going to be listening on how to improve their customer obsessiveness in their current organizations? I think there's, um, there's a number of like tactics that companies, um, can use. One, I think is doing research more frequently. So just having the opportunity for people to have conversations with customers Two is, um, not separating the people who are making decisions about products from the people who are talking to customers. So oftentimes what happens in large organizations is you have a customer support team or customer success team, um, who's the one that is having all the conversations with, with customers. And then you have a product team who barely ever talks to the customer support team. And so there's this, this disconnect, um, that happens. And so I think it's really important for product managers, product leaders, other innovation leaders, um, to embed themselves into those customer support organizations and make sure that they understand what's happening on the ground. Um, so, you know, part of it's listening to the inbound part of it is making the effort to make outbound conversations through user research. I think there's also more intelligence that companies can get, um, through social listening. So understanding what conversations people are having about your products or related products on social media, looking at reviews. Um, you know, a lot of startup founders will look at the reviews for apps that are doing really well or products that are doing well and just solve all of the things that people mention um, within the reviews that they want to see. And then all of a sudden create a disruptively popular product. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a really scrappy way of figuring out, you know, what the opportunities are. Um, so I think, you know, having both the outbound as well as the inbound, as well as not just thinking about your product, but also thinking about um, other products and the whole life cycle of things that um, a person might use in their daily life is, in, is important. Because at the end of the day, your product is not nearly as important to your customer as it is to you. Um, and it's important to understand how your product sits within the whole um, portfolio of things that a person might do in a day, rather than thinking about your product in isolation. Interesting. Um, and with, your ex with the experience that you've had, Ravi, with different organizations, um, can you share any kind of examples of kind of measures that you've taken? Like, if I'm not mistaken, I think when you were a TripAdvisor, you came up with the instant booking concept, um, right? If I'm not mistaken. So like how, like, not that specific example, but any other kind of things that you led to you in terms of like finding an opportunity and actually creating it? Yeah, instant booking is a really good, um, good example. Um, and it was a sort of a company-wide uh, trajectory. I was um, the lead for the instant booking team, but it was part of an overall company-wide um, strategy. The uh, the insight was that people were coming to TripAdvisor to use um, TripAdvisor to make decisions about their travel choices. In fact, there was some research that the company did that something like 70% of all hotel decisions were informed at some point by TripAdvisor content. Um, so they were making their decision on TripAdvisor, but they were buying elsewhere. And so there was a leak, there was a disconnect between um, the value that people were getting on the site and TripAdvisor's ability to actually participate within, um, within the transaction and help make that transaction easier. And so the instant booking concept came out of that insight, which was um, to enable people to book directly on TripAdvisor rather than have to go um, elsewhere. And so in that way, it was very customer driven in the sense that it was oriented towards making customers' lives um, easier. The Easy. other thing that was really unique about TripAdvisor that allowed TripAdvisor to pull on that thread 
um, was that people were coming to TripAdvisor not just for hotels, but also to learn about restaurants, also to learn about attractions and things, things to do. And so TripAdvisor um, had this really unique position in the market in that it was the place that people would come to plan their trip, unlike um, Kayak, where people are just price shopping and price shopping for right. a very narrow set of things for flights and hotels, unlike booking, where people are going to book, book hotels, TripAdvisor had a much more holistic um, role in a person's trip. And so the idea of adding booking was something that TripAdvisor could pull throughout all of the different places that were represented on the product, um, including restaurants and, um, and attractions. So the company purchased uh, La Fourchette, which is a large restaurant reservation company in Europe, um, purchased Viator, which is the largest attraction booking company. Um, and today, uh, TripAdvisor has really transitioned from a user-generated content site to much more of a transactional marketplace. Um, so it was an interesting um, example of how a consumer insight in terms of how you can make a um, user's trip better, how you can streamline the process for them can actually become a thread that you can pull through the entire strategy of the company. No, it's interesting. I think uh, <clears throat> with what TripAdvisor did there, it led to so many other companies and in different industries and verticals adopting this kind of instant booking <laughs> uh, feature. Uh, so it was very interesting that that you worked on. Thanks for sharing the background there. Yeah. Um, uh, the another question I have is um, uh, there's a challenge among kind of innovation leaders in terms of uh, identifying what problems they have like the right to solve for their customers. Um, do you have any kind of frameworks or general guidelines around how Lord, large uh, organizations can define the role that they play in their customers' lives? I think a lot of times what, um, what innovation leaders at larger companies run into is uh, they figure out, you know, what the market looks like and what, um, you know, the different strategic areas of opportunity are, um, and then identify really high potential markets without necessarily thinking about the role that they currently play in customers' lives and how to work into adjacent um, use cases um, and deliver things that, you know, not only are interesting strategic opportunities, but where that company is uniquely positioned to play, both in terms of the strengths that it has as a company um, and the way in which uh, customers look at um uh, look at the product or look at the role that the, the company plays. Um, so I think that's, again, an area where consumer research plays a really important part. It's essential for um, companies to understand um, the jobs that they do for customers. Um, there's this uh, framework called Jobs to be Done that uh, you know has been popularized in, in recent years. Um, and the, the insight is that people don't use a product to use a product, they use a product or they hire a product um, to solve a job um, in their life. And the classic example is, you know, people don't want to buy a quarter inch drill bit, they want a quarter inch hole. And actually people don't want a quarter inch hole, they want to hang a picture of their family. Um, and why do they want to hang a picture of their family? They want to do that because they want to be reminded of their loved ones in, you know, every day when they're in their office. Um, and so, you know, by working backwards from, you know, what is it the product, what is it the actual reason that a user is using a, a product? You can figure out, um, you know, what, uh, role you're playing in a person's life 
and then um, from there figure out the adjacent things um, that you could provide to the customer um, so that you can hire um, hire that company um, to do related tasks. And so, you know, a lot of companies that have portfolio strategies do a fantastic job of understanding that and building that. And as you broaden the portfolio, it increases the range of things that you can solve for a user and increases your your optionality around those things. Uh, great example is Amazon. You know, Amazon started with with books. Um, they earned the right to sell books to people. They moved into DVDs and video games and other things that had a similar dynamic. Um, and today they're the everything store, and so they've earned the right to sell uh, anyone anything um, at the anywhere at the best price. <laughs> yes, anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's crazy. The uh, yeah, the I think the the one the framework that we use is is the five whys, which gets us to like the reason why somebody really wants to do something. Uh, it's an interesting exercise that when we do it with our clients, it really gets like the root of what it is that they're really trying to solve. So it's 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 great that um, I hope it's used more because it really helps get to the bottom of it. Um, I, I had a couple more questions, Ravi. Um, it's more around like, you're, you're, you've been an innovation leader for a long time. What would you say is the biggest misconception uh, around the innovation mindset? you know, from your perspective that you've seen? I think the biggest misconception is that um, you can do the, that you can separate the analysis and understanding of what people want from the execution of that. And so I see a lot of companies um, spend a bunch of time figuring out what they want to build and then spending a bunch of time building it in a phase, and then they launched it and it doesn't work. Um, and so this is what I think one of the reasons that you know innovation has uh, a bad rap um, in the industry at times is because you know people look at that and say, well, you know that's just innovation teams just spend nine to twelve months building things that are high risk that probably won't work. Um, and so it's you know it's a lot of money to invest um, for something where we're not sure what the benefit is going to be. Whereas I can take all of that resource that I'd invest in innovation um, and put it towards hitting our, our revenue goals for the next two quarters um, and be in much better, better shape. Um, and so, you know, I think now there's a much deeper understanding of this, but ultimately innovation is an iterative process. It's a matter of um, having a conversation with the market and the way you have that conversation is you develop a hypothesis, you build something, you put it out there, try to do that as quickly as possible, figure out how the market's reacting, get the feedback, integrate that feedback um, in um, and build the next iteration. Uh, at Reforge, we talk a lot about loops and how um, you know people should really think about um, the the elements of the products that they're building or the things that they're accomplishing, not in terms of a funnel or not in terms of a waterfall, which moves from stage to stage to stage, um, but really in terms of a loop where the output of the loop connects with the input of the next loop. And when you do that, when you create those um, circular relationships, you get to a point where you're not just growing linearly, but you're growing um, in a compounding way. And so um, I think that that loop-based thinking is not just important for specific elements of growth, like acquisition or retention, um, but it's also important to think about your innovation process as a loop, um, where the, you know, the, the input is an understanding of customers, the output is a product, um, but then once you release that product, that feeds back into your understanding of customers. Um, and the faster you can travel through that loop, um, the faster you can innovate, the faster you can generate innovation um, that the market really wants. Mm -hmm. it, it, do you think it's possible to be too customer centric or does that not exist? 
I think the risk in being too customer centric is um, over listening to customers in the sense that you do exactly what they say. Customers are not always able to articulate directly um, what they want in a product. Um, and so if you ask them, you know, what are the next five features that they want to see in a product? Um, in a lot of cases, you won't get a very accurate answer or they'll think they want something even though they're using the product um, differently. Um, so I think, you know, rather than uh, listening directly to customers, ultimately it is a matter of using the five whys and, and using that in various parts of the process of having those customer conversations to understand what is a customer saying and why are they saying, saying it and then building for the root need that they have rather than building for the specific thing uh, that they say. So, you know, I think a really good example is, is Snapchat versus, versus Facebook. Snapchat took a very different approach to social media than Facebook. No customer at the time would have said, you know, I want messages that um, explode after a day. Um, I want to have an app where I can use all these silly lenses. Um, I want an app that's messaging first rather than feed first or camera first rather than, uh, than feed first. Uh, and so it wasn't a matter of asking customers what they want and building it. What Snapchat understood was that Facebook had created a way of interacting with your friends um, that left some really critical white space. So a lot of younger users didn't want to share on Facebook because they didn't want the things that they, sh that they shared very casually to exist forever. They didn't want all of those things that they shared to be shared with all of their friends and family and parents and friends of, of parents. Um, they wanted a more private place. They wanted a more fun place. They wanted a more casual place um, to connect with each other. And so the fundamental need was really around a social need around creating a more casual um, place, a more private place. Um, and the features that they built enabled them uh, to do that. Uh, so you know, there they solved for the fundamental need rather than ask the customers what they wanted. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I still don't get Snapchat in many ways. I mean, maybe I'm not the right target customer, but I've always been fascinated about its, its like its growth and its potential that they've, uh, that they've created. Um, I wanted to ask a question that comes up a lot in um, calls I have with uh, innovation leaders at different enterprises. And I think it depends on the culture that, you know, the... Uh, the organization runs from an innovation mindset perspective, but what I've heard a lot is sometimes um, innovation leaders struggle to get their ideas in front of the decision makers, like the key people making decisions around budget or approvals or innovation in general. How can organizations encourage more of a bottom-up innovation approach? Yeah, it's a really good, it's a really good question. Um, and I think it is, you know, oftentimes you see companies that are innovative, a lot of the innovation comes top down because you don't have to justify. Um, yeah. And one of the trickiest things about justifying innovation is you do need to have conviction, you do need to be willing to take a risk. Um, and it's much easier for someone to have that conviction if it's their idea and if it's the leader's idea than it is um, if someone is coming from within the organization saying here's a need um, that we have to fill. I think there's a variety of ways to do that. The first one is that leaders should create a climate where they enable bottom-up innovation. Um, it is very rare for a company's leadership to have all the good ideas um, and to uh, and, and ultimately to be responsible for the innovation roadmap for a company. Um, there are definitely some visionary leaders that are able 
uh, to do that, but it's often a lot more effective, especially as companies get larger to enable that bottoms up innovation. Um, and it's really effective because the people within the organization are the ones that are closer to customers um, and often have a better idea of what those needs are and how they might relate to an innovation roadmap. So I think the first thing is for leadership to be open to uh, bottoms up innovation and create a climate of bottoms up innovation. I think the second thing that's really important is for leaders to share a very clear um, articulation of a company strategy so that um, bottoms up, people understand what the context is that they're innovating within. Um, oftentimes, I think where innovation roadmaps go wrong is a, a team will have a really good idea, but it just won't relate to the company strategy. Um, and then you have this thing where um, you're asking leadership to invest in something that's just outside um, the, the frame of what they want to accomplish. So I think it's incumbent for leaders to be really clear about what the strategy is, what the constraints are, and, and where are the areas where they want to innovate. Um, and where are areas where they feel like it's outside of the company strategy and, and distraction. Um, so do, those two things, I think, increase the, the hit rate for um, people being able to innovate bottoms up. And then if you are a person within an organization that is looking to convince leadership of an idea, I think there's a certain set of things that you can do in order to make leadership more open to that idea. So the first thing is to make sure that it ties to some understanding of the company strategy. And if you don't have a full understanding of the company strategy, being really clear about what your assumptions are around that strategy is important so that when leaders are looking at the idea, they don't, they can, um, you know, separately engage with what's the problem you're trying to solve versus what's the solution that you're using to solve it. Um, oftentimes being able to talk about those things separately is important. And then I think the third thing is um, to take a really evidence-based approach and a really iterative-based approach to innovation. Um, and so if you come to a leadership team and say, hey, I want to spend the next 12 months, the next hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars um, on this idea that we have, um, you know, the chances are going to be no. But if you come in and say, um, you know, we want uh, a limited amount of time, a limited amount of resources to prove this hypothesis. And then based on that hypothesis, if we prove it, we know what the sequence of steps is going to be so that we can then ask for a larger amount of resources and then invest more fully in the hypothesis. Um, you know, that's the right way to approach, approach innovation. And this is something that Amazon does um, incredibly well. Um, so Amazon, uh, you know, will allocate resources to incredibly crazy and far field um, ideas, you know, one example is like there's a treasure truck that they have, um, which drives around cities. I've seen it in, in Seattle um, and has some deal of the day and you can get alerts, um, you know, based on where the treasure truck is going to be and go and, um, you know, they, they have a certain stock. Sometimes they sell out. Sometimes nobody wants the product oh, wow. um, that they're trying to sell. So crazy idea, um, you know, might work, might not work, but they were willing to invest enough of it or invest enough in it to understand, is this hypothesis um, valid and can we build something bigger out of it? And so Amazon's very good about giving people just enough resourcing to prove out an idea and then add more resources in as it becomes clear that particular ideas um, are getting traction. I think it's one of the reasons why Amazon has been so good um, at innovating in so many different fields is because they do take that very iterative and controlled approach to innovation where they're willing to try things, but they also wanna see evidence very quickly. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I did not know that. I'll check it out though. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, Ravi, a couple personal questions. Um, I mean, you have to kind of always be at the forefront on everything that you do in terms of where the trends are going, what's on the horizon, um, uh, you know, how to stay innovative. 
how do you, you know, stay competitive as an, as an innovation leader yourself? Like, uh, where do you go for research? You know, what books do you read? Who are your mentors? Who do you look up to? Who do you get new ideas from? Can you share maybe some <laughs> that we could pass down? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we're in a, like a golden age in terms of business thinking and business knowledge. Um, there's a lot of the classics. Um, you know, I love Clayton Christensen's work. Um, I think he has time and time again, you know, written things that are just penetrating in terms of their um, their thinking um, and also timeless in terms of of their thinking. Um, so, you know, there's a number of people like Clayton Christensen who are classic business thinkers who I think create a great foundation. There's also, um, you know, a lot of newer, um, newer thinkers that, you know, are sharing out what they've learned on Substack and Medium and uh, other places. Um, you know, I like, uh, you know, Sarah Tavell has fantastic work. Lenny Rachitsky has fantastic work. Um, and so there's actually no shortage of really great thinking about, um, you know, whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, if you're trying to build a, a marketplace, if you're trying to build a social app. Um, and I think right now I'm finding that the thing that's harder uh, is actually figuring out what, you know, where to put your attention <laughs> rather than um, finding the really good, good thinking. Um, so, you know, there's definitely high quality folks. Um, you know, I follow a set of people on Twitter and other, other places and get information from there. Um, you know, I also think that there's something unique about a book versus a blog post. You know, when someone sat down and said, I'm going to spend a year or two um, to comb, you know, all of the great uh, thinking within a particular area and put that together in a really concise um, and structured way. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, it's less, less in fashion right now, but there's some uh, really good things that you can pull out of those, especially if you, um, you know, spend the time to, um, you know, not just read the book, but actually think about how you're going to apply it. <clears throat> I love Reforge as a way to, to level, level up. Um, for many years, I've um, contributed to Reforge as a, as a guest participant um, and then sent a lot of my team to the courses. Um, and so being part of that community has been really great in terms of uh, immersing myself in, in good, good thinking. There's a lot of other communities like that. There's a lot of um, uh, creators now who are creating and organizing communities around particular ideas. Um, so I think right now there's so many good resources to, to stay sharp, to freshen your thinking, to get alternate ideas. Um, it's a matter of figuring out like, where do you want to spend your time so that you're getting maximum ROI on that time that you're spending? Wow, that's amazing. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Um, before we get into the quick fire questions, which I love ending with because it's like, la like quick one-liner tidbits people can walk away with. I wanted to ask right now, who, what organization do you feel has done the best job of adopting an innovation, a DNA? And why do you, why do you think about that way about them? I think Amazon has done the best job of adopting innovation DNA, and you could see it in the diversity of products where they've been successful. You can also see it in terms of not just their successes, but also their failures. They have tried a lot of things that have not worked. Um, and um, you know, I think the thing that makes them really special is the willingness to, to connect really deeply with the customer. Their, their culture is based on customer obsession. Um, and then to try things, uh, double down on the things that are work, not working, and then learn from, or double down on the things that are working, and then learn from the things uh, that are not working. Uh, so I think they are really a model of innovation. There's other companies as well that, that people look to. I think Apple is an incredibly innovative company, but they're much more innovative in a focused 
way. And I think they're more innovative in a top-down way. So it's harder, I think, to take lessons away from Apple. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the lessons that you can take away from Amazon are really broadly applicable. Cool, cool. Okay, thank you. Um, I got some quick fire questions for you. So basically one line of questions, one line of responses. Um, maybe I'll join the some, some together, but I wanted to ask what is something innovation leaders should stop doing like tomorrow right away? And what they, should they start doing more of? I think they should stop optimizing for the short term um, okay. and start thinking about the long term and then planning to reach the long term through shorter term iterative results. Um, so there's an interesting balance there. There's a nuance. Um, you know, it's not about optimizing for the short term revenue target. It is about optimizing for short term learning that you can get. Awesome. Okay, great. Um, you mentioned that there's a lot of different material out there that, you know, it's hard to kind of find a focus, but for you right now, what is like the most interesting digital trend that you see most likely going to take off in a big way in the next couple of years? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think we really fully haven't appreciated the impact that video is going to have um, on the industry. You know, this year has forced um, people to spend a lot more time on video. A lot of companies have quickly added video-based experiences. Other companies like like TikTok have have disruptively grown because of an interesting take on video. Um, I think almost all products will be video centric um, three or four years from now. Um, and, but I don't think all uh, incumbent products have really figured out how to add, add video uh, in the most compelling way. Uh, so it's a very near term thing. Um, you know, there's of course AR and VR and, and all that stuff. I think that's a little bit further out right now. I think the thing that people are going to clamor around over the next two years is to understand what's the right way to add video, both in terms of um, entertainment, as well as in terms of um, connection um, and mm -hmm. social interaction into their products. That's amazing. Yeah. A, a few people that I speak to are saying, are saying that they're really tired of zoom and uh, you know, these virtual things, but nobody's really hit, hit it out of the park yet in terms of creating a good video-based experience that uh, might in the future replace in person, who knows, but definitely a lot of innovation uh, capabilities there for sure. Uh, cool, cool, awesome, awesome. Um, Ravi, uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure having you on our show. Uh, I really appreciate all the knowledge and wisdom uh, you've shared with us today, so thank you. Thank you for having me.